When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty cake. Except no substitute. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I am Jim Brockmeyer. And I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual via Google Hangout again by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Dan Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan? I am significantly less interesting than Jim Brockmeyer, Leslie. As am I, my friend, as am I. Well, you have a new place. Congratulations on the purchase of your condo, my friend. Mazel tov. Thank you. Thank you much. My life is in boxes. Yes, but you found the mic and that's what's important. Right? I found I found the microphone and uh, and our wonderful, wonderful podcasting producer, Matt, says that you only should hear a little bit of the traffic outside my window. So that is all that matters. <laughs> we'll take what we can, Dan. We'll take what we can. Well, what do you say we dive into this week's headlines? Absolutely. Up first... Universal Television Alternative Studio, a great name for a studio, has acquired the formal rights to a reality competition series that will find the next Menudo. A network has not been attached. Yes, the new boy band show will be coming to a network that who knows what, but it's another singing competition, but this one with a purpose and basically bringing back a band that with a massive track record and big name that is, well, for most people, a household name at least of my generation. I am sure that they will be able to get Ricky Martin involved to some degree. Yes. In other news, The World According to Jeff Goldblum, which was developed by National Geographic and aired on Disney Plus, has gotten a second window on, wait for it, National Geographic. It's an interesting story because you've got, you know, a lot of shuffling within the Disney fold, but it also comes at a time when that was a show that was meant to be on Nat Geo. And now they're getting it because who knows what programming that they they may have had holes on their schedule from everything that's been impacted. I don't know, but it's an interesting story nonetheless and worth mentioning here because, well, it's funny. In scheduling moves, CBS has delayed the launch of summer staple The Amazing Race for later this year. As fans of the show might put it, that's either a detour or a roadblock. Anyway, over at ABC, the network has slotted a Bachelor Greatest Hits series to fill the void created by the absence of The Bachelorette. And One Day at a Time, which has aired all of its pre-pandemic episodes, will air an animated special in the spring to help fill the void until it can resume production. Leslie, do you have a podcast episode tied to that that you want to plug? Yes, you, sh you most certainly should go back and listen to our March 27th showrunner spotlight interview with co-showrunner Gloria Calderon-Callot, where she talks about production being interrupted and ways that she sees production resuming, as well as what to expect in the rest of the season. In other headline news... Orange is a New Black creator Genji Kohan is teaming with Netflix for what I'm told is a short form episodic anthology show called, wait for it, 
social distance, where everything will be filmed remotely and cast members are going to get a Blue Apron style delivery box to help with the equipment that they need for production. Casting as well as a premiere date have not yet been determined, but this is the latest that we're seeing in efforts to keep production of some sort going during this pandemic. On the development front, HBO is prepping a Hellraiser TV series because why the hell not? Why the hell not? IP gonna IP. And in cancellation news, Netflix has axed Idris Elba comedy turn up Charlie after one season, while USA Network has canceled Dare Me. Although I'm told producers Universal Content Productions will shop the series elsewhere. Of course, it does have an, uh, a streaming window on Netflix, so that would be the, the presumptive home, but it's unclear if there will be any takers. I said when that show premiered, and I will continue to say, A, it's an extremely interesting show with a lot of great performances and a really good look and vibe, but also it was not a good match with USA, and I compared it to you as a show that is much more likely to eventually find an audience courtesy of Netflix, and I continue to believe that. I think that once Netflix can actually air that show with a second window and once they can have that show start autoplaying after people watch cheer I, I think that people will find that show and realize it is actually a really really good show also the first season does not resolve the narrative of the show and therefore darn it i would really like a second season of that show but oh well yeah it's surprising to me because this show was a well-reviewed show and they owned it so it just I don't understand this one. You know, the only thing that I can point to with this one is that USA is shying away from scripted originals. They're basically using programming like that as, you know, as a tentpole. I think the, the look is one per quarter and to launch off of other things. Yeah. So I agree. That's a mistake. Uh, hopefully people will find the show because I've been pushing it on people. So watch Jeremy, folks. Yeah. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, as the calendar turns to May, this is a time when most scripted broadcast shows would be getting their writers' rooms back together before production begins shortly after the 4th of July holiday. But with no clear end to the safer-at-home guidelines, there are more questions than answers about how TV could possibly return to work. To discuss the subject, we're pleased to welcome our colleague, THR senior writer and friend of the five, Bryn Sandberg, back to the show. Thanks for joining us, Bryn. Thank you guys for having me virtually. <laughs> so you've spent much of the past few weeks reporting out a great story about how Hollywood could possibly resume film and TV production. How likely is it that that work will get back anytime soon? Let's just start start big. There. Well, yeah, that that's the that's the question that everyone's trying to sort out in Hollywood. So, of course, you have the leading studios like Disney, Universal, Warner Brothers, the leading guilds and unions like the the director or the DGA, SAG, all working together to figure out when when Hollywood can safely go back to work and what sort of protocols are going to be need to be in put into place. So what we're seeing in terms of timelines, it's all a little murky because we, of course, don't know what's going to happen, you know, tomorrow or, you know, weeks from now. But what, what we heard in our reporting is that 
likely, at least in California, you know, things will be rolled out in phases. And what that means is that in the earlier phases, there will likely be restrictions on the number of people who can be, you know, on set and there will be, you know, strict social distancing measures in place. So what that means is that you'll probably have smaller productions getting the green light first. And for some of these larger studio productions and huge big budget studio films, it's going to be a lot longer. And so the earliest, most optimistic uh, dates that we heard is really summer, late summer, maybe July, August, but really more likely fall for a lot of these productions. But again, that's that's in flux and could easily, you know, be pushed back or or maybe pushed forward, depending on uh, what happens, you know, today, tomorrow and next week. <laughs> Uh, it's it's a great article uh, that is available on THR.com and everyone should read it. And and you the thing I found most interesting was that you were talking to all of these different entities. As you say, it's the studios, it's the guilds, it's the production companies, etc. The film commissions, yeah. Did you get a sort of sense of the different tones that different people were bringing to the table? Like, are there people who are who are taking this as a kind of more urgent thing? Are there people who are being more cautious about it? How, how were the different tones in the room about this? That's a great question. I think the, the, the biggest takeaway was that each studio and guild and film commission is sort of looking out for their own people the way that they should. Right. And this is this right. is what they this is who, you know, who they who they're supposed to be looking out for and what they know best. And so, you know, one of the things we heard is that a lot of the, the major studios wanted to really be in charge of their developing their own set of protocols because they feel like they know their their projects the best. The, you know, they know how their sets work. There was perhaps a bit of hesitation about having some of the other you know organizations step in and, and determine what's best for them. That was definitely the case. And I think for, you know, for organizations like, you know, guilds like SAG-AFTRA, which, you know, of course represents actors, they're really invested in making sure that performers are going to be safe and that, you know, and a lot of actors are actually put into situations, you know, where they're they're close to other performers when they're acting out a scene. Sometimes they have intimate scenes that, you know, might involve kissing or, you know, that sort of thing where you might not think about it, but that that those scenes could really be in jeopardy now, because how do you how do you safely film them um, and ensure that somebody isn't going to be infecting somebody else with the virus? And so there's even discussions about, you know, making some of these scenes work in post-production. So shooting some of these intimate scenes separately and then piecing them together to make it look like, you know, they were actually shot together. So there's a lot of good, good wifing it, basically. (laughs) I could wiping it. There's a lot of creative discussions happening at the moment, and that's just one of them. I, I love that we've put all of this emphasis in the past year and a half on intimacy coordinators and all of that. And when this all comes back, an intimacy oh, coordinator. Oh, the poor intimacy been... <laughs> coordinators are out of work. I don't mean I'm not belittling it. I'm just making a, you know it's, a very it's not... unfortunate joke. It's now going to become the social distancing coordinator who makes sure that people don't come within six feet of each other or something. That's yes. Angle your head at 45 degrees and put your tongue this way. I don't know what that (laughs) what that job looks like. But um, the other pieces, too, is, you know, it's like, you know, actors and everyone else. It's such, you know, having been fortunate enough to be able to visit a number of sets like Grey's Anatomy and Big Bang Theory and you're the worst over the over the years there's location shoots there's and there's always a number a massive number of people on on set at any given time and you've got hair and makeup doing touch-ups between every single take and there's just 
you know, the craft services, you know, area where everyone constantly grazes all day long. How is all of that stuff going to be impacted or might it be? Because obviously nothing's definitive yet. It's 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 likely to be completely overhauled. I mean, you, you bring up craft services, you know, you can't go over to the table and dip your hands in the in the chips and, you know, that other people have been touching as well. You know, so there that's basically what we're hearing is that, you know, it's going to be completely reimagined. And there's even discussions about having individually wrapped, you know, meals for, for lunch, um, which some productions like airline have foods? done in the, in the past, but there was, there was a dis- discussion. One person, you know, raised the possibility of working with, uh, you know, the companies that, that create these airplane meals, uh, for lunch for people because they're not, you know, they're not producing as many right now since people aren't flying as much. So those conversations are happening. There's also, you mentioned the number of people that are on sets, you know, they're typically these, you know, uh, sets are typically bustling. You have all these people coming in and out. You have visit, you know, visitors popping in, friends and family. The set builders, everyone, everyone with tools and, and doing all building the, stuff and taking it just there's so much costume people. Yep. And so that those numbers will have to be pared down significantly. And one of the one of the folks that I talked with for, for this piece was Frank Patterson, who's the president at Pinewood Studios in Atlanta. And he said, that, you know, they're keeping they're going to keep a close eye on, you know, who they're actually giving credentials to to, to be on the lot. Um, there's also discussions about creating badges for, for people, depending on which department you work in, say you're in set design or you're in hair and makeup or you're in casting or wardrobe where you would, you know, wear something that would identify what part of the set you are allowed to be in so that you don't have people, you know, in air crossing into areas that they don't necessarily need to be just to, again, help, you know, stem any sort of spread uh, of germs. And so there's all sorts of all sorts of things are going to have to change in in terms of, you know, props and, you know, sharing tools and reusing hairbrushes and, you know, that sort of thing. There's going to be a lot of one-time use disposable options uh, as opposed to, you know, recycling uh, things that have been used before. Well, you just mentioned one of the things that I also find extremely interesting is that it's not just how is Hollywood going to get back together, it's how is Hollywood going to get together? How is Atlanta going to get together? How is Vancouver? How is Toronto? What sense did you get of the different geographical concerns? And if, say, for example, one of these locations might be closer to being ready to go back into production than the others? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, th- that, that's a great question. And and uh, my colleague that I, I worked on this story with, Etan, lives in Canada. And so he had some insight into what's going on up there. And, you know, of course, right now the borders are closed. And so that's something that is going to have to be, um, you know, changed in order for them to get get their you know film sector started up again and, and there's also a, a 14 day quarantine period that's going to have to be lifted uh, in order you know for people to be able to get back to work quicker and what we're actually seeing in Canada some some people have been you know waiting there and sort of waiting out waiting out the quarantine to see so that when you know when they are able to start back up again they can jump right back in but that's something that, that they're looking to and we're seeing uh, we're seeing in California, there's been increased interest in actually staying in California if you live here because they feel like they want to be closer to their, their friends and family during this time. A lot of actors, especially some some high level ones, supposedly there's been some uh, an influx of calls to, you know, Film Commissioner Colleen Bell um, and uh, the president of Film LA, some of these folks who are, you know, leading the charge here in California about productions that want to relocate 
here in, instead of, you know, shooting in wherever far off location they were supposed to go. Um, and then that, of course, is going to create uh, some, you know, st- studio space issues, which California has already been dealing with, but there's just not enough sound stages and buildings for all of these productions to film once they do get the green light. So it'll be a whole other host of issues that the, the state and the industry will have to combat. It's all one massive long jam. <laughs> Given all you've just listed, I don't understand how things are going to be ready to go by the summer. But what do I know? <laughs> That's at least when the broadcast networks are hoping to get back to production, because that would be the, the, the last possible moment that they could go, could start in order to make the, the late September premiere week launch. And that's, of course, throwing out pilots and picking things up straight to series. But like, you know, Bryn, you know, thank you so much for joining us. I just want to have one last question here. There's been a lot of talk. I mean, as as a big baseball fan, we just talked about this with Hank, where we're talking about quarantining people on sets or in hotels. Is there any realistic way that that's something that people are legitimately talking about? Because it just seems like who's going to want to do that? Like, it just seems completely outlandish. It, it is something that is legitimately being talked about. This idea of, you know, if you're if you're filming at a specific location, you find some hotels nearby. That's where all your cast and crew stays. You know, they don't go home. They don't you know, they they hopefully don't have too much contact with anybody else. that's not on the set. They're, you know, tested every day. Um, and and it might I mean, the, the reason why these things are being discussed is because what if you do start up a production and then two weeks in somebody on set tests positive for coronavirus? coronavirus, what do you do? Do you shut it down? Do you, you know, how do you find out who they'd been in contact with? You know, it just sort of opens this can of worms. And that is one way that, uh, that producers and, you know, the other, you know, creative folks trying to sort out these issues are trying to, to get around things and, and try to keep sets safe. So we will see if it actually happens, uh, and, and how it works out if it does, but, but it's definitely something that's being discussed. Well, thank you, Bryn, for joining us. And obviously, this is a developing story, and we'll hope to have you on in future episodes as we as more concrete information becomes available. Thanks, Bryn. Thanks, Bryn. Thanks, guys. Number two. Up second, Dan, Parks and Recreation special aired this week. And I don't know, we haven't talked about this yet, but for me, it was perfect. I thought it was great. I, I loved every single frame of it. I thought the production values were great. It was so wonderful to see these characters that I love so much back and to kind of, it it just really felt like we were seeing that this special felt like this was a way to entertain people and also send a message of hope and saying, look, you're not alone. We know that if you're experiencing isolation and quarantine, call, reach out and call your friends. I love that. I loved everything about it, Dan. And what did you think? And it didn't bother you that it wasn't really especially funny at all? <laughs> I thought it was funny and heartfelt. I loved all the digs at Jerry. It was perfectly on brand with that. I loved the, the dynamics between these characters. I loved everything between, and I guess we should have let off this this whole segment with a giant spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen the, the Parks and Recreation special, please skip to our next topic. But I love the dynamic, but you know, seeing, seeing Tom and Donna banter. I love Donna's message about how teachers should be valued. I love seeing Chris Pratt as Johnny Karate with a message to kids to be nice to their parents and wash their hands. It was, I, these, these characters could have read the phone book, Dan, but it was 
to me, it was it was absolutely perfect. To me, this was very close to those characters reading the phone book. Uh, <laughs> to me, honestly, it was it was completely and totally pandering to the fans, which was exactly what it was supposed to be. It, this was not a thing made to be critically reviewed. I am not no. writing a review of it because I don't think there's any purpose to it. To me, as an episode of Parks and Rec, it is not a very good episode of Parks and Rec at all. On the other hand, as a well-meaning effectively emotional glimpse into a life of characters who we all still have a great amount of affection for. It did what it was supposed to do. I, 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 you know, this is not an episode meant to, I don't know, have people celebrating the writing and directing choices or anything like that. It's an episode that was designed to have people go, yeah, it was nice to spend 24 minutes with those people again. And I think that that is without any question true. It felt to me like they had a little bit of a list that they were going through of can we reference this? Can we reference that? Can we get in this cameo? Uh, will we make this joke that everyone will go, ha I see what you're doing. And it was basically that for 24 minutes. Right. But I, they, and the, the big thing that I think we're forgetting here, too, is, yes, that it did feel like there was a checklist of like, let's make sure that, you know, to make a note that it's important to check in on your friends and that if you're a caregiver and that you're taking care of other people, remember to 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 take care of yourself too. like love, you know, give support and shout outs to, to teachers. But like the best part of the whole thing and the one thing that we're missing and that we should have let off here is that this whole thing was done with a, an amazing purpose. And that was to, to raise funds for Feeding America. America's COVID-19 response fund. Their hope is to raise, you know, more than $500,000. NBC and, and the, the Parks gang, they're all doing matching funds up through like May 21st. This is just, to me, I loved everything about this. Like, I can't say it enough. Like, just, I, I have been singing Mouse Rat's 5,000 Candles in the Wind and Bye Bye Little Sebastian ever since I saw it. It was to me, like, it, it just like even seeing these characters again and and relating to the to the plight that everyone is experiencing. I mean, this is a, a rare moment in television in that what we are seeing in a special like this and, you know, in, in terms of what like CBS is doing with All Rise, these are characters in a scripted show that are actually illustrating what we as people are experiencing in real life, too. And it's all at the same time. And to me. That is impressive. And in terms of the production values, having seen two SNL at home episodes, as well as um, some of the like the Disney sing along specials, the production value on this was absolutely incredible. <laughs> what was all that incredible? They were in their houses. It was just but fine. It looked I great. I mean, you, we've seen SNL and it's like all the quality varies from house to house based on who's got good Wi-Fi and, and what the lighting is. This was Across the board, to me, it, it it felt like the best produced remote episode that I've seen or the quarantine or what, however we're going to call these these at home shoots. It should be noted that all of the people involved in this show, if they were shooting in their homes, they, they all have more money than most of the people on SNL. I, I mean, that's that's because right. that's I mean, Mike sure <laughs> did say that they that they sent out little mailers that were all of obviously disinfected before they were packed that, that had things like lightings, you know, and I've been reporting out some stories around all rise. You know, a lot of these people are getting kits, just like we talked about in headlines this week with the show Social Distance that Genji Cohen's doing for Netflix. These are like going to be the increasing norm, at least as long as this this safer at home mandate is in place where productions are going to have to start sending out these kits with equipment to say, we're going to try and do this. Here's a way to make it a little bit easier. You know, I talked to the director of the All Rise special and he was basically saying the same thing. Like, you know, these cast members were giving 
cinematographers and everyone else like tours of their home to figure out the best places for lighting and the best place that their Wi-Fi signal is strong. You know, I mean, these are huge obstacles that people are overcoming to deliver content to, to, you know, to entertain and in the, in the case of parks to entertain and also do some good in the world. So to me, I'm, I'm just blown away by what the parks gang was able to pull off. No, I don't want to take anything away from, from the intent and purpose of this. Uh, every bit of the message that was conveyed on the show was a good and right message about caring for the people around you and looking out for the people in your community and your world. And that was, of course, also always the message of Parks and Recreation. This was a show that was particularly well suited for this sort of event. And yeah, it it did some good. I just didn't find it really all that funny. But if that is not necessarily a part of what we're critiquing, then that is okay. I I thought that the production values were fine. I thought that the lighting and makeup were strange in some places, but they were also strange in a way that were completely in keeping with what would be happening with these characters if they were stuck in their houses for six weeks. So no, I, I enjoyed getting to revisit these characters and all of that. And it, this was not a, an episode intended to be reviewed. I'm sure some people will. I am trying to avoid it because I, I just don't think it's that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah. you know, and I was on uh, lucky enough to be among the reporters on a press call with Mike Schur, um before the special aired this week. And, you know, he said the same thing that he, he said at the Paley Fest reunion a couple of years ago and after Parks originally ended its run is that he never, he, you know, he and Amy Poehler and the rest of the cast never envisioned going back to this because they had a, a story to tell and they felt like they, they told it and that there would always have to be some kind of compelling reason to get every, to get all 10 stars back. And sorry, no, Mark Brandanowitz was not part of it, Dan. But, you know, the, the quote that, that Mike Schur said that really sticks out to me is, and I'll, you know, this is direct, there's only one thing happening in the entire world right now. So if you get any group of people together, show them anything, and you don't have the story be about what's happening to them during this pandemic, then what are you doing? The only reason to do the park special was to show the characters dealing with this particular issue and use it as a way to raise money. And, you know, he was asked during the call if this was a one-off, if there was a way to do kind of a will and grace, bring it back for another season or a limited closed-ended thing. He basically said, you know, it's not going to happen because there's no real need to do that. And like I said, you know, he and Amy Poehler said that they had a story to tell and they told it and they intentionally shied away from answering the big cliffhanger or the one big unanswered question from the parks finale. And that was what is Leslie's political role in the future? And he did it intentionally, you know, even though he did say that this special should be canon. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, good for them. Good for them yeah. for doing this. Uh, and and honestly, I, I cried, think that Dan. I cried watching this, and I thought it was <laughs> I thought it was great. And I will watch, keep it on my DVR and watch again. Excellent. Well, up third, mixing things up a little. Number three, Dan. You want to introduce our next guest? Which he kind of introduced himself in the opening of our episode today. Indeed, we were supposed to have this week's guest on to talk about the start of the baseball season last month and then that didn't happen. So we are still happy this week to welcome Hank Azaria to the podcast, a six-time Emmy winner for his work, including The Simpsons, Ray Donovan, and Tuesdays with Maury. Azaria is the star and executive producer of IFC's Brockmire, which will air its series finale on May 6th. He is also a devoted Mets fan. Welcome to the podcast, Hank. Thank you, Senator. Senator Feinberg. Um, well, Hank, thank you so much for joining us. 
I just feel the need to tell you that Dan has been on my case for years to watch Brockmire, and it took quarantine to get me to start. And as a lifelong baseball fan, I am embarrassed to say that it took me that long to watch. This has been the story of my life the last few years is, uh, you know, it's the bittersweet uh, reality of having a cult hit, which is code for a great show that nobody watches. So I'm glad you, and you know, honestly, I mean, this is, you know, I never would have chosen a global pandemic. I just want to go on record as saying that, but you know, <laughs> maybe one of the minor silver linings for me is more people are stuck in the house like yourself with time to binge and, and take suggestions on what to watch. And I'm hoping more people will check out the show. Cause I, I think it's the thing I'm maybe most proud of in my life professionally. And it's so, and I never would have imagined that I could have made something that came out beyond my wildest expectations and that it would be hard to get to people, to get people to watch it. But that seems, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the, that's the peak TV landscape right now. That's and, and the challenges associated with it. But um, I just wanted to thank you. So for bringing that, that humor <laughs> and joy into my house at a time when I miss baseball and yeah, I'm someone good... who grew up worshiping Vin Scully. So this is a very sh right show for me that I'm. And for the, I mean, you kids at home who can't see her, uh, she is wearing a Dodgers <laughs> hat as we speak. So and my Max Muncie T-shirt. So. Oh, night, Matt Muncie. Yeah. Very. What do you say? Go get it out of the ocean. Go get it out of the ocean. Right. Go get out of the bomb ocean. Off Mad bomb. Yeah. <laughs> that was fantastic. And by the way, I'm really like I'm not self-promoty guy. I never was. You know, like even as a young actor when. I'd have friends who were like good at sh schmoozing, you know, their way into jobs, you know, and like not in an obnoxious way, but even just in a, in a, but I'm really bad at that. But because I so want people to see Brockmire, it's now placed me in a position of having like promote it and talk it up. And I, I feel so awkward doing it, but, but the show really is worth it. Right. I mean, do my oh, job yeah. for me, Leslie, help me. Right. <laughs> or, you're bummed. You came, you came to it so late. I'm bummed I can't do it. So, but it, it's so funny. I mean, there's a line. I think I must have said it on the show a hundred times already or teased my wife about it. But like, I think it was maybe in season one where you're playing catch with, with I think, Charles. And it, and you said, are you sure you're right-handed? And I just <laughs> died. Like, And I've, in, I've incorporated any hoodles into my everyday vocabulary and emails. And I, I, yeah, it's, it's great. And I just, you know, really curiously, you know, this show started as a funny or die sketch during the writer's strike a few years ago. And I remember breaking news of the story and being excited because like I said, I love Vin, but th this was a dream of yours to, to bring this, to, to adapt it as a series. But what was your pitch for IFC? Was it always four seasons and would end in this crazy dystopian future in which baseball is completely batshit crazy? No. And short answer is no. Next question. Um, <laughs> no, I, usually I, you know, I love this show so much and there's so much lore to it that I usually go on way too long. So I'm going to actually try to be concise. Uh, the, uh, it started as a sketch, as you said, on Funny or Die. And by the way, I sat in Vince Scully's chair to shoot that short. We were shot I at thought Dodger it looked Stadium. Familiar. Yeah. And then we, we put it together as a movie. Because the, the 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 short got a really good response, and we lost our financing four days before shooting, uh, to the tune of like six hundred thousand dollars went down the toilet. And then Funnier Diet, they were so awesome, they stuck with it, and we, we we reconfigured it as a as a cable show, pitched it around. IFC bought it, and then it was really Joel Church Cooper 
who is the head writer of the show, who A, envisioned it. I saw it as what you saw in the sketch, this kind of sophomoric excuse to be funny and dirty as a baseball announcer, you know? And like, I, that was always a comic idea I had in my head since I was like 19 years old. Like, do guys like Vince Scully really talk, do they talk like that when they go home? Does he like, honey, what is for dinner? And I'm looking forward to an invigorating uh, sexual encounter with you later. Or, you know, <laughs> and, and, and will they, you know, when they're drunk or having sex, do they still talk like that? And so I just looked at it as a way to do that. And Joel saw in it like this metaphor for America through baseball and an alcoholic's journey of sobriety and from selfishness to, you know, to, to gener generosity and sort of a reverse Walter White where he goes from this jerk to this loving guy. And I'm like, wow, OK. Um, and he had written the whole first season and I didn't even realize how much depth he had written into it till first day of shooting when the, our director, Tim Kirkby, who's amazing, who shot the first season, British guy, he shot the pilot of um, Fleabag as well. And I did my first take and he came on a set and I'm feeling pretty good about it. I kind of did my Brackmire thing, you know, I thought it was kind of pithy and funny. And he's like, he goes, man, mate, look, this material is really dark. There's so much pain. There's just pain everywhere. It's got to be in your performance, man. I'm like, I think he's right. I think that he's, Joel's written a lot of depth and pain into this. So after that, I started taking that more seriously. And then Joel, he, he had the whole four seasons in his head, but only last year did he decide it should be a dystopian future. Because that wasn't necessarily part of... It was always Brockmire was going to become commissioner in a weird way, but not, you know, in like a dystopian 2032 that he added in. Well, okay, so how did he pitch it to you that he wanted to do this jump forward in time and this dystopic future? Joel pretty much just says it as he, like, uh, Joel kind of talks like this, everything's kind of loud... Like, I see this as, like, a dystopian future, like, Brockmire's commissioner, and, uh, you know, it's just going to go from there, like, whoa, 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 slow down there. Like, that sounds crazy to me, and I don't know how that's believable. And But I had, I've had i learned to, like, trust Joel and let him follow his muse. And I asked him three or four times in this, and I'm like, are you sure? It's an awful big swing. But every year, he's not resting on his laurels of the season before and just kind of created something new, and it's always worked. And, see, and the episode eight of season three, I don't know if you've gotten that far, Leslie, but. I finished um, the whole thing. Oh, okay. So you see. I've had some I time. I almost saw that as a bonus track. Like it's almost the story arc of season three seems to end at episode seven. And then we kind of throw in this societal commentary that isn't really vital to the narrative that year. But I was a little dubious about that episode, but. Not only did Joel, did it make sense off the page, but it was really funny. I think it was arguably one of the, and, and his social commentary had a incisive but light touch, I thought. And that, and sort of all of season eight is kind of like that. And I figured, well, he did so well with that and he loves writing that. We'll probably do all right. And I was happy with how it came out. Well, have you gotten a sense of how it plays differently given the state of the world, because I know I watched the episodes in January and it played one way, but, you know, with the pandemic, with no sports, et cetera, have you gotten any sense of how it plays in our new world versus when you made it? Yeah, it's kind of astonishing. I mean, 
it takes place in a world where baseball is dying and people are getting used to the idea that it may not survive just because people have lost interest in it. And it takes place in a world where global, you know, where a, a cooling off period is only 114 degree temperatures on the eastern seaboard. And, and you know, Arizona is now called the disputed lands because there's a movement to a militia movement to s- secede from the union. And, and there's a pandemic and there's um, uh, all kinds of things. And it does ring a lot truer than it would have three months ago if it were released. As as someone who watched the final season in its entirety this week, it rings very odd to watch while you're trapped at home and can't turn on and watch a watch a Dodger game or something. Yeah, yeah it it's strange, right? And so, strange. I think it both speaks to Joel's uh, again his incisiveness and insightfulness and his accuracy about certain things and. Um, because we make a lot of calls about the future that I thought were very plausible, even you know reading them a year ago, including like where where a uh, where an operating system like like Alexa might take us. Um, I love that about the, the this season, like how episode eight turns into this weirdo Black Mirror episode. I really like that one, and um, yeah, so it's less escapist and yet more, <laughs> um, more relevant at the same time. Yeah. The final season, one of the pitches to, with how to fix baseball is robot umpires, yeah, which is something obviously Major League Baseball or Minor League Baseball has considered doing electronic strike zones and all that kind of stuff. How did you guys approach how much or how little you wanted the final season of Brockmire to make actual suggestions about how to fix baseball? Well, we've always taken – Joel and I are both huge actual baseball fans. He's a Giants fan. I'm a Mets fan for my sins. And um, we both love baseball and we I insist on honoring the truth about baseball, you know, reality to baseball, being part of the series. Uh, and all my favorite sports movies like Slapshot, a lot of it's kind of based on the tone of Slapshot, Bad News Bears. Um, those kind of '70s realistic takes on on the grittier side of sports. There's a absolute reality, even to to little league baseball, to minor league hockey, and those. And we wanted that to be part of Brockmire. We noticed making the short. I thought the character of Brockmire would lend itself to broad comedy, but we found that in making the short, he's a bit of a broad character, and that he's a guy who goes through his life actually talking like a baseball announcer and announcing certain aspects of, of his life, like having sex, as if it were a baseball broadcast. But he must be, the more you believe it's happening in reality, the funnier it is. So that's why we hired brilliant actors like Amanda Peet and Tyrell Williams. And you have to feel like it's all happening in the real world. And that, that certainly went for the baseball aspect. So we've always looked at baseball realistically. You know, it's funny. First season, I know I'm talking very long. Joel wrote in all these jokes about how baseball's dying. And, you know, I'm, I'm an old white man who loves baseball. I'm like, what do you mean baseball's, what's this baseball's dying crap? What do you mean? He goes, you don't know that kids today don't care about baseball and find it boring and too long? I'm like, no, they do. I was shocked by this. He's like, yeah, no. Young people don't, they have no patience for baseball. Or they can't watch it. 
because of the region, all the regional network deals and everything like like up until a month ago, I think it was like more than half of L.A. couldn't watch the Dodgers on TV. Oh, that's really an aberration to L.A. But that's ridiculous. <laughs> but that yeah, is but, and it's like it, that when you have all the specialty networks that do that where, where you make the deals with the teams and stuff like that. But well, I that's right. true. But on the other hand, I mean, as a Mets fan, I moved to I moved ironically as a Mets fan. I moved to L.A. in 1986, which is the last time they, they won the World Series. Ray Knight. And, as yes, among others. And um, I wasn't able to follow the Mets until about 2000 when, you know, these packaged, you know, satellite deals. Now I can follow the Mets from anywhere, online and otherwise. But I moved back to New York anyway uh, six years ago. The reality that baseball sort of uh, interest in it is waning, apart from as a, as a regional sport, uh, has been built into the series all along. And these were just kind of straight-ahead suggestions, you know, robot umps and um, – you know, limiting. I mean, they're they're doing the relief pitchers, right? Have to face at least three batters this year, mm-hmm. and this stuff's. But if you follow sports talk like Joel and I do, you've heard these ideas a bunch the last two three years. I'm for robot umps, by the way. Why are you for robot umps? Because I I think balls and strikes should be. You're never going to get rid of what's human about the game, and there of course should be a home plate on back there. But I don't like this subjective strike zone thing. I never did. And why not quant? And it's an easy, that's much easier than say whether a home run is foul or fair, like the video replay or like what I don't love is the video replay of, of plays. It's like a tag play and how if a guy's foot is off the bag for a nanosecond, he's out. I think that was an unintended micro detail that I could have lived without. Same. But balls and strikes here, let's, let's make that universal. Why not? I just think that the more ca- uh, cameras you put places, the more you're opening doors to what happened with my poor Red Sox this week. My poor victimized Red Sox. Dan, well. I am going to hurt you. <laughs> you cost us a ring. The Astros Whatever. cost us a ring. Are you a Red Sox fan? I am a Red yeah. Sox fan. And a fan. Patriots fan? Uh, trust me, I have a lot of so really you, insufferable so you're fan you're a bases. cheating fan. So you must. <laughs> See, so gonna, thank you, you Hank. Are, are thank you. you. <laughs> so, so you love when like like when, when husbands and wives commit adultery. You like root that stuff on, and <laughs> and uh, and now you're switching to be an Astros fan. Now, now you love the Astros because now I'm just. What, what can I say? My fa- my favorite Showtime show was The Affair. You know, I had <laughs> must be. I feel so vindicated right now. Cheaters. (laughs) All I'm saying is that once you put the cameras out there and once you take away the human aspect to that degree, you're just inviting people to try figuring out stupid things to do with those cameras. So Uh, only if you're a Red Sox, an Astro or a Patriot. (laughs) Yeah, Dan, did you learn? I mean, do you want everyone in the dugout to have an Apple Watch? Is that going to make it easier for you guys? Oh, wait, you guys already did that. But, and you know, the, the form always follows function, meaning like these cameras are already there. We already have to live with them. So, I mean, if I can look, I mean, I watch the normal Fox broadcast and I see the strike zone clear as day. You know, once it's hit that level where every it's being broadcast, same in, in football, right? We all knew, saw the instant replay and we knew what the right call was. And then they then they implemented it. You know, obviously, Brock Meyer in the final season becomes commissioner of baseball. What? about you? What would be the first thing that you did if you were commissioner? One of the things that we suggested that they, I think they, they were going to do in spring training anyway, they started to do, I think I saw a really funny clip of Rizzo from the Cubs. I think the idea of, uh, of miking up and, and cameraing up the players is a great one. 
why not? You'll get some stars that pop out of that. Like Rizzo was on his way. Pete Alonso would totally be a star in this way. You know, the the guys in the league that have re, uh, real personality. Like, uh, Neil Walker, I interviewed him. He's a really funny guy. There's a lot of guys who would, you know, they'd get a huge social media following and um, would be really fun to drop in with them. I would do that in a heartbeat. Yeah, I love when they do that for the All-Star game. Yeah, it's great. Why not? I would absolutely, you know what I would do? I would, here's my radical idea. I would start with the premise that post the steroid era, because I love baseball traditions too, but I would go with the premise that post-steroid era, all those records are out the window anyway, because it's all been semi-trashed. So let's just start over again. Let's make seven inning games. Let's make, you know, the owners will never go for this, but I would sit, oh boy, I'd, I'd be about as hard as Brockmire was on those owners. I'd be like, you guys don't like it. You can sell your stupid team, okay? Let's do 120 games per season and um, let's make this manageable for everybody. And I would, I would, I would shorten almost every professional season except for football, but I would make it much more fan friendly in this way. I'd make the games be much more urgent, you know, from a the mattering standpoint. And uh, I'm not so sure about that relief pitcher stuff, but I would try whatever. I would open it up so that every year you got used to the idea that baseball is going to try three or four different things, and I don't care what it does to the record books. I really don't. Now, are you the kind of fan who is so desperate for baseball action that you've been watching vintage games these past couple of weeks on MLB or whatever? No, I'm a freak with if I know what happened in a game, I don't care. Like, and the way I watch, because I'm a long-suffering Mets, Jets, and Knicks fan, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to watch games in <laughs> real time. I really don't. They drive me too crazy. So I'll like, I watch every single Met game, but I'll record them. And I'll start watching like an hour in or the morning, the next morning. And so, and, but I don't like to know who won, but I fast forward a lot. Like I'll watch the first two innings in real time to get a feel for the game. And I hate, I can't emotionally stand to watch people score on my team. It drives me crazy. So I'll like fast forward um, the innings when the opposing teams at bat. And then I'll, <laughs> I'll only unfast, when the Mets have runners in scoring position, then I'll, then I'll watch in real time. And so I don't like to know. And often, though, the game gets spoiled for me, as you might imagine. Like, I'll hear the <laughs> score. And that drives Once I know the score, I get disinterested. So, no, I don't like watching old vintage broadcasts, unless it's extraordinary. I was going to say, does it carry over to Game 6 in the 86 World Series or something? Would you, would you watch that again? Not even that, because I'd watch, you know, I never get tired of watching that ball roll through Buckner's legs, but I just want to see that. Iconic. I don't want to sit, yeah, I don't want to sit the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, as big of, I probably go to 15 or 20 games a season and, and watch 60 to 70, if not more, at home. I haven't been able to watch any of these vintage games. I watched one night early on because I needed to pick me up and they had a classic Vince Scully game on. Um, and other than that, it just makes me sad to kind of think about that. This is the programming that I'm being offered because the league can't start up again. Yeah, and, I agree. Yeah. And, you know, at the same time, you know, there's been a couple of, of really kind of wild suggestions about ways to get in this season of baseball, Amid a pandemic, I mean, what do you think of some of the, of some of these suggestions, like playing all the games in Arizona? And I mean, I'll take honestly, I'll take anything at this point. And I think it's a good excuse to experiment with some of these weirdo rules that we're talking about. Like, why not? It's all big asterisks. If we're only going to play 
50 games. Let's do weird things with them and see what sticks, you know. Let's play seven-inning doubleheader games and whatever. I had this idea that I thought was brilliant. I told the Houston Chronicle the other day, like, because we were talking about whether they, they were talking about pumping in crowd noise on the broadcast, which I think would be totally weird. But I was like, I got all excited. I was like, you know what you do? You have, let's say you have the Mets playing the Giants, you know, in Arizona, okay, in an empty stadium, like at Sun Devil Stadium, whatever, right? And instead of having the broadcasters there in a silent stadium, like for the Mets, you put Gary Cohn and Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling in a bar in New York, right? And they call the game amongst fans just at the bar. And you get the crowd, the bar noise in the bar and them kind of interacting live with folks and calling the game. But what's the one, which is a good idea, but what's the one flaw in my logic? Bars have to be open. Yeah, bars have to be open. Yes, I, duh. For the same reason you can't have folks in the stands, you can't have a big crowded bar. So I got excited for about five minutes and then realized that it's not Yeah, it just, it just bums me out thinking that, like, the Dodgers could have, have traded three big prospects, gotten Mookie Betts and David Price, and then we could lose Mookie as a free agent without him ever pay, playing a meaningful game for the Dodgers. I know. It's absolutely – yeah, it's a lot of weird things like that. You know, but one of the silver linings for me is, as a long-suffering Mets fan, is how badly are the Wilpons kicking themselves for not taking that offer from Steve Cohn for $2.6 billion? <laughs> and instead, they're watching the team get devalued, and they're going to end up selling the team for, like, much less money, you know, because of this. Yeah, to possibly A-Rod and J-Lo? I don't think that's ever going to happen. <laughs> I, I honestly... I'm on but the I mean, board of, of Dream, which is a wonderful organization in New York, which started as Harlem RBI, which is now an educational organization in New York. And, and MLB is very heavily involved. Mark Teixeira has been on the board for 10 years, and Rob Manfred is on the board. So I, sit, I, sit, I, I was at the last board. I joined in the last year. I sit there. I've sat there with, with Rob Manfred, and I made a lot of Brockmeyer commissioner jokes, just, you know, like if you need any help on how to deal with a crisis, you can, you can always ask Jim Brockmeyer. But I, I think, think Jim Brockmeyer might do a better job right now, but that's just my two cents. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to refrain from <laughs> commenting yeah, as he's my fellow board member. But um, I don't have any inside information, but I don't think MLB will ever really approve of an A-Rod and J-Lo situation. I, I don't. I mean, as a Mets fan, does it piss you off that a Yankee could wind up buying your team? Well, do you know how much it annoyed me that Beltran was going to be the manager? I mean, I'm one of those Mets fans. I know he was a Met, but he was also a Yankee. But I'm the kind of Met fan that can never forgive him for not taking the bat off his shoulder in the in the 06 playoff series. I'm like, you get, to me, he's an iconic Met villain. It would be like bringing in Chase Utley, you know, to manage the Mets. It's like, you got to be kidding me. I love Chase Utley. Or Chipper Jones. I love the Silver Fox. Oh, God. Can't decide who I dislike more, Utley or Chipper Jones. But anyway, let's not let's not argue. So now you're sitting with Rob Manfred at an event. Do you get the sense that he's watched Brockmeyer? Is is he a fan? I know he at least knew who the character was. We didn't go into I don't know, like he didn't quote episodes to me or anything. I don't I don't know how far he's gotten. Do you get the feeling, though, that people are now suddenly taking your opinions about baseball much more seriously than they were when you were just Hank Azaria actor and Mets fan? 
No, again, because not enough people have watched the show. Perhaps if <laughs> it had been gone past cult hit status, maybe like in, out of this conversation and others like it, maybe we'll get folks to watch it. And by the way, all three seasons available on Hulu. I don't know how you saw it, Leslie, but... Uh, I watched the first three on Hulu and the last can, on screeners. Yes, and then they'll, they're they're going to release season four on Hulu very early, like like at the end of May, so you can binge them all. Just, you know, in time for Emmys. Oh, look at that. Um, <laughs> see, very awkward at promoting my own thing. But, uh, yeah, so maybe if more people... But no, people don't... You know, they, they know Brock Meyer. I have noticed this. Like, I tweeted out a joke about the Pirates the other day as myself. It was a good... It was written for Brock Meyer. But I'm like, oh, this is a funny thing to say. And I got so much hate back from Pirates fans. I'm like, oh, I see. And Brock Meyer never does. Like, Brock Meyer can make fun of your team and people think it's like a compliment. If I make fun of your team, people get got very upset. So I realized not to make that mistake anymore. <laughs> Have you heard from, you know, folks like Vin or some of the other broadcasters in the league what they think of the show? And, and have you talked to any of, of them during the course of its run about how they how they approach their jobs? and oh, Or even some of like the people like Joe Buck and... Well, Joe, yeah, Joe's been, he was in the original short, as was Dan Patrick and Rich Eisen. And then Joe, you know, has been, been a, you know, in our acting company and he's brilliant. Yeah, the ongoing dialogue and punchline of Joe Buck is probably one of great? my favorite things of the show. Isn't he honestly great, though? Like, he is, you know, he leans into it. He, but he's really good. Like, we wrote that stuff thinking, you know, well, we're better off with like a Joe Buck type who can really act it as opposed to Joe. Because, you know, you never know how a sportscaster is going to really act. And we were like, well, and we made sure to write it so that it could be cut, like in case Joe wasn't up to it. And he finishes like after his first take, we were like, couldn't believe it. We're all staring at each other like, is he this good? Really? Like no actor could have done it better than he did it. Which I think, like the episode that just aired, the Hall of Fame episode, I thought he was amazing. Like the funniest he's ever been. So, and Bob Costas, actually, I, 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 when we had finished season one, I thought I was pretty happy with it. And I, I email blasted it out to everybody I admire in baseball, like Bob Costas and all the announcers I love and got a lot of love back from people. And Bob really loved it. He actually started lobbying me to be on the show and he ended up being in season, season three. So, um, yeah, you know, I've heard back from a lot of folks who really, most baseball people are aware of it. Michael Kay, I just heard from, he just started watching it. Now, as you guys were looking at this as a last season, did you kind of have a checklist of the references you wanted to make sure you made, the characters you made sure you got back in, et cetera? Did you, did you have an eye on satisfying certain itches as you were ending the show like did you know going into the last season for example that it needed to be jewels in the last half of the season and and could it have worked oh, if amanda had been busy it was always intended that that love story would that she would be heavy in season four and it was it wasn't as intended that she would actually season two was meant to be about tyrell meant to be about the charles character sort of a uh, as much as, as as the season one was a Jules and Jim love story, season two was going to be a Charles and Jim love story. I think then season three was Amanda Light only because of schedule stuff. Like she was meant to be in a little bit more of it. Um, and in fact, we went to the character of Brock Meyer's other girlfriend in season three. A lot of that was meant to play out with Amanda, but 
It just schedules didn't line up, so we gave it to another character. But yeah, it was always supposed to, we made sure in season four that she was available because we wanted to finish telling that story. But other than that, not really. But Joel did have it all in his mind. He knew where we were going. I didn't plan on this show being as narrative heavy as it was. To me, it it (laughs) could have been just like Always Sunny, where it's just as long as it's funny, it could just be episodic, you know. But Joel really wanted to tell a story. And I'm like, well, okay. To me, that was another big swing that I'm like, geez, I... That's a lot of pressure. I hope you tell a good one. And he definitely did. Looking back on the whole series, was there anything that you wanted to touch on, especially in the final season, that you just didn't have time to get to? No, because we actually took on much more than I ever thought we would. I would have been happy. My only rule I ever gave Joel was just, please just make it funny, dude. That's all I ask. You know, I I think we're in a golden age of television the one one of the few things that bothers me about it is when comedies aren't particularly funny. I'm like, well, that show is great and really smart. <laughs> I smile maybe once an episode, and I love the show, but that's a comedy. I don't it doesn't strike me as a comedy. I'm not going to name names. I don't want to be annoying, but it's other <laughs> shows that I think are great. But I was like, it's a comedy. Let's please make it funny. So as long as we did that. Uh, I was happy. Other than that, we took on way more than I ever thought we would. Got much more in depth than I ever thought we would. And and this is just sort of the question that we ask all of our interview subjects when we get towards the end is, what have you been watching and enjoying yourself lately? I just uh, went on Rotten Tomatoes and gave my recommendation, so I'm very well prepared for this uh, question. <laughs> uh, one of my favorites of the last... Actually, a show similar to Brockmire in that it's completely underwatched. Uh, is a, is a British show called Happy Valley. You guys seen Happy Valley? I have. It's a great show. Love that show. And I would suggest watching it with subtitles because the Northern <laughs> England accent is so thick, it's hard to follow. I loved The Boys. I thought The Boys was tremendous, uh, super dark and excellent. I thought Watchmen was great. And I'm a little wary of, I forget the name of that showrunner. He's pretty brilliant. He did The Leftovers. and Damon Lindelof. Yes. I'm a little wary of him because at times he has led me down a path and not I felt <laughs> not paid off, like in Lost. I was like, what the heck's all this uh, at the end there? But I thought he did an amazing job in Watchmen of tying it all together and um, and paying it off. But I just finally caught up with Fleabag. I mean, you honestly, that was one of the shows that was so hyped up and built up for me. But <laughs> man, I loved it. I thought it, it delivered there's a movie, I, I, there's certain movies, if they're on, I have to watch them. Godfather, both of those, Goodfellas, The Natural, Bad News Bears. We mentioned Slapshot, Bad News, Bad News Bears, Hoosiers, I think might be my favorite sports movie of all time. What's your favorite baseball movie of all time? The Natural. I would go yeah. with The Natural. I love The Natural. Yeah. Um, but there's certain bad movies that if they're on, I have to watch them. And the king of that list that I've taken comfort in lately is uh, Roadhouse. So if you haven't seen Roadhouse, <laughs> do yourself a favor and check it out. <laughs> this has been tremendous. Thank you so much, Hank, for joining us. Thanks for watching. I really appreciate your loving on the show. Thank you so much. The series finale of Brockmire airs Wednesday, May 6th at 10 p.m. on IFC. Number four. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment for the week. This week, we are pleased to be joined by Justin Roiland and Mike McMahon, the co-creators of Hulu's upcoming animated series, Solar Opposites. Roiland is best known for co-creating Adult Swim's cult favorite, Rick and Morty, 
while McMahon has worked on the series as head writer and counts the upcoming Star Trek Lower Decks animated series for CBS All Access among his credits. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You know, so getting started, obviously, you guys have have Solar Opposites out this month. Can you talk a little bit about the, the seeds for the where the show came from? I mean, you know, having worked together on, on Rick and Morty uh, for a while now, uh, is this something that came from one of those conversations or walk us through how, how the show came to be? It was uh, I, I had a blind deal with 20th and I had burned through the first two with these blind deals. You have to bring in three ideas. That's sort of the way it works usually. And uh, I had brought in two that I had sort of fleshed out and worked on and they passed on both of those. And it was, it was year. This has been like years into this blind deal. I mean, this blind deal was before Rick and Morty. Oh wow! And yeah, I was kind of just dragging my feet on it, and I, I was both ready to just get the third strike and move on, um, and get paid off and uh, or paid out or however that works. But I also, I also was like, well, I don't want to do this alone anymore, and I, and I don't, and I had an idea, and I, and I went to Mike. And because I was like, would you want to partner with me on this? And he said, yes. And then we started working on this idea that I had been kind of developing. And both of us kind of just, I think I realized throughout the process of working with Mike on this particular idea, how joyless it was. It just wasn't good. I mean, it was good, but it was like not the thing that I wanted to make. Whatever it was, like it's so blank in my mind, but it was like, (laughs) we were like, we need to figure out what other people want. And then at one point we were like, what the fuck are we doing like let's just make something weird yeah yeah it was like it was like a boyfriend and girlfriend i think maybe this might have been one of my other ones and they lived together with their with with the boyfriend's brother and then their the dad was super rich and but wouldn't give the boyfriend or wouldn't give his son any money and it was a fuck it it was just like <laughs> what it, what are we it's, it was an interesting concept but it was not we weren't there like we weren't jiving with it and it was miserable and it was sort of like well if we're this miserable now how is this going to be fun to make if it goes so we um we put that aside and then we just started fresh, you know, fresh ideas. And uh, we pitched a few ideas. And then I, I had remembered I had this thing from forever ago called Solar Opposites, which isn't a fresh idea, but it is because the original idea was pretty different. It was just alien odd couple. And and uh, Mike instantly liked it. And we, we sort of realized, oh, this could be really fun doing a sort of immigrant story with aliens. And then we really dove in and made it what it is now with with the replicants and we 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 came up with the backstory for for their home planet and 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 all of the kind of the pupa and just everything yeah justin had a sketch of the two leads and the name solar opposites and we knew that because we were trying to figure out what is the prime time animated comedy we wanted to make we built that sketch into a whole family so that from a distance it would look like a simpsons or a family guy or one of these things but then when you got closer to it it was getting weirder and weirder the the kind of more you paid attention to it. And that was sort of the, that's what got us laughing and having fun because we both love TV. We both love animated shows. And this felt like, it felt like, oh, I kind of know what this is at first. But then we, since we were just chasing, making ourselves laugh and doing whatever we wanted. And because it ended up on, on Hulu as a streamer, like we got to do stuff on it that even though every episode looks like, a Simpsons, it goes to a crazy place that always just had us laughing. Well, what was the initial, how was the initial version, the sort of primetime version of it different? And how much did you enjoy getting to quickly go and say, okay, well, forget about the restrictions of primetime. Let's do, let's go crazy. 
I mean, um, it was it was. Yeah, when Fox <laughs> when Fox passed, we were pretty relieved because we were trying to come up with. I mean, we weren't relieved. It would have been funny to have a weird Fox show, but the um, we immediately when we were going to Hulu, we're like, actually, this kind of unlocks a bunch of the stuff that we were going to try to sneak into the 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 primetime animated sort of like super broad version where we knew that we could drop it all at once bingeably and that meant that we could write it in a way that we've never written something before which is highly serialized elements mixed with grounded family standalone stories and so we were we kind of it it, it sort of shifted and evolved from being a standard fun weird broadcast comedy with slightly, you know, peppered in uh, serialized elements to being a heavily serialized show with the Fox stuff peppered in, which which I ended up liking more. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's so funny because, you know, the show is obviously from from 20th TV, which is now owned, owned by Disney. That's different than Rick and Morty, which is, has obviously has distribution with with uh, Warner Media. But how does having a Disney involvement, it, does that limit you or is there anything that you that they said that you can't do? No, I don't think they know we exist yet. <laughs> Weirdly, conversely, Rick and Morty is TV14 and we're TVMA. So we keep putting things in there thinking somebody's going to say no. And then we're like, then it's just in there into the final cut. And we're like, maybe we should have said no. This is disgusting or this is crazy. But it ended up feeling really like, I think because it's on Hulu and because you know, we were getting to kind of follow our bliss with it. We weren't, we didn't really have any gatekeepers on this for better or for worse. Yeah. And Mike and I keep like being tickled at the idea of these innocent, non-malicious aliens causing so much gore and death because they're not doing, they're, they're, they're so, they're so likable and, and sort of naive that you kind of, you skirt the issue of um, alienating the audience from the character when, when these things happen. And it's, so it's really funny to, it's just funny to lean into that. We, we, we've been doing it since the first episode and it's like, normally on Rick and Morty, we would be like, okay, we can't like, they, they just killed like an old woman on a bus stop. Like we don't, that's not, that's, that's not cool. It's not okay. You know, it's, it's it, on this show. It's like, whatever. They don't know any better that that's just, they don't know human ways if, if murdering a poor old lady on a bus stop is bad. They're so naive and violent that they're bulletproof from judgment, which is truly the American dream, I guess. <laughs> well, that's kind of how it fits in topically. But I was watching the episodes of this and there is a ton of violence and gore and blood. And I kept going back in my mind and going, there's some of that on Rick and Morty also. How do you kind of describe the difference between what you were able to do in that particular content department on Adult Swim versus here on Hulu where anything goes? No, on Rick and Morty, it's just, you know, hey, no, no pink brain matter. You know, it's like, like we have these little like these little notes that I I think they think make a difference or, or mean something, but they don't really at all. You know, like, like with the, with the pickle Rick episode when he's just eviscerating all those rats. And this is, this goes back to the f first season. Um, you know, when, when Jerry like was left behind in the, in the Cronenberg reality and he's got his shotgun and stuff. It's like, no, no pink brain matter, no pink. So we just kind of went in and, colored it all red and it's like okay it's all bloody and red <laughs> fine done it's easy and you know it, it it kind of is no one's ever going to notice the difference between a little bit of pink in there versus just all red 
but we just we're like, okay, we'll 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 take care of that for you. And on solar, that never even came up. Like on solar, <laughs> I feel like I feel like on solar, I was like, okay, I've never done something with Hulu, and I don't know what twentieth is going to get mad at, and I don't know what. Like oftentimes we'll be like, why are people mad? And it's like, oh, because there's an advertiser that 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 accidentally makes fun of. So in the first season, we kept adding stuff to be like to find where our limit was to know when we would have to pull back, including like wholesale mocking brands that have nothing to do with the show that didn't pay us to be in it. And just like violence and just the most ludicrously awful language and just adults behaving horribly towards towards little alien replicants. And, and at one point I just started, I was watching Outlander at the time and I was like, man, the sex scenes in Outlander are crazy. Any sex scene season one of Solar, I kept telling the animators, draw it like this episode of Outlander. (laughs) So then we kept getting these like ludicrously, we had at one point in episode seven, me and and Sydney, the uh, uh, Sydney Ryan, the line producer, were watching this sex scene in episode seven and it ended and we both just looked at each other and we're like, we can't hand this in. Like, it is so graphic. We had to like, silhouette out a bunch of pubic hair and like all this stuff because they just literally went off of Outlander. So we never found that wall. And second season, second season, I was like, let's keep going. Let's keep exploring and find when they tell us no. And it hasn't happened. <laughs> and and there's also a fair amount of, of let's say, gentle mockery of Hulu specifically throughout. I, I would say probably every episode or every other episode, there's at least one little Hulu joke they have no issues with that? No, I think they loved it. I mean, the first joke we had was was the tester on that because I remember Bart Simpson used to talk shit about Fox and I always loved that. It just made Fox yeah. seem cool. And I was like, "All right, nobody considers Hulu a network. They consider it an app, but let's have our let's have our characters treat it like Bart used to treat Fox." So I think our first joke was Yumiak was like, "Oh, there's an empty spot at the cool kids table. I'm going to hang out there until everybody just feels like I belong and then they won't tell me to leave. And, and he's like, just like Hulu. <laughs> and they, ne- I was like waiting for Hulu to be like, eh, you can't say that the only reason we make money is because people forget to delete the app. And they never said it. So then every episode we'd be like, all right, now we can make fun of Hulu. And like, they're kind of like, I think in our world, there's a fake iPad called the Hulu Vizu that, that Terry uses that is constantly breaking and running out of batteries. And I don't know. It just, it just tickled us to kind of lovingly mock Hulu until they told us not to. And then they just never told us not to. Well, it's funny because you, you know, you hear in these situations, oh, everyone has a good sense of humor about this. And for example, there was a show on YouTube Red where almost every joke in the first season was a YouTube Red joke about how it sounds like a porn site and all of this. And everyone afterwards was like, oh, they said, go ahead and make the joke. And then immediately after the first season, YouTube ceased to be YouTube Red. And they're like, yeah, we're YouTube premium now. So you don't know how anyone is actually being (laughs) amused by these things. Hey, if they they have to change the name of Hulu, I'm getting a T-shirt that says our show made Hulu change their name. (laughs) (laughs) At least invite us to uh, the will... brainstorm, you know, for the new name. Yeah, so we can make fun of that. Schwilly. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give that away for free. Are you crazy? Yeah, you're right. That's Schwilly. Oh, I want to talk about the premise a little bit. You know, this is obviously a show about a group of aliens who crash land in America and are divided on whether they think Earth is awesome or awful. 
Um, are you guys like when you kind of sit down to look at the big picture, like, are you trying to make you, you know, use this show as an opportunity to kind of make any kind of commentary about the world that we live in or this or the state of the world? Or I mean, currently, obviously, it's everything's kind of fucked up um, to say the least. I don't think we have yet, really. I mean, maybe subtly. I, I think it's more just a really interesting launching point for for how to approach writing the characters, because we those uh, points of view are in us, you know, like I, I know I can look at Earth and see a laundry list of things that are horrible. You know what I mean? And that's sort of Corvo. It's like the, the Texas sized trash island in the ocean, the, you know, the just the kids making global iPhones. warming. Yeah. The, All the bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Yeah. Down to those kinds of like parking tickets. I mean, just, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, there's the big picture stuff and then the stupid bureaucracy. And then and then there's a ton of stuff that we both or that we all love, you know, like Nintendo Switch and Nintendo games and the Kardashians, you know, huh? Guilty pleasure. Right. No, I haven't watched them in years, but but, you know, I can see how people love that stuff. And like I listed two things, Nintendo games and the Kardashians. That's it. You know, it's all there. And then everything else is horrible. Yeah, we didn't didn't want to do like a show that felt like Captain Planet where we were like trying to like, you know, teach a lesson every episode. But the characters are just to not reiterate what Justin said, but just to agree that like, you know, the characters are built into the stuff we hate about the world and the stuff we love. And then we split it into kind of two characters and examine what is it like to live in a world for the first time where you're learning all that stuff? Now, I'm still not sure on this, having watched a handful of episodes. Are Terry and Corvo, are they a same-sex couple, or does their home planet just have a very different concept of gender than ours? That's a hot they're, button they're issue, gen- Dan. That's a hot button yeah, issue. Yeah, they're, they're actually genderless. They're, <laughs> they're, they don't have gender. They're, they're plant-based. The way they reproduce is by cutting a piece of themselves off and putting it in specially prepared soil. So, so we approach we approach them from as alien a perspective as you can when it comes to gender identity issues because it's just it, to them it's very alien the idea that there would be two different types and of the same species and how complicated and and unnecessary and uh so yeah i mean we we knew early on that they they're sort of trying to fit in you know like that's why they sleep in the same bed <laughs> they're like oh this is what they do but they don't really understand why. The way I always think about it is, it's like when somebody learns English by watching Die Hard a million times, which is why in their regular conversation, they say, yippee Kaye, Mother Falcon. And <laughs> it's like Corvo and Terry know everything from watching TV and movies and stuff. And on their planet, there isn't any such thing as, you know, at these gender roles. But at the same time, they are emotional creatures that we're telling emotional stories about. So... They do kind of fall into these lanes and then fall out of them, but it's it's the not having to choose and not having to make a statement and kind of like in any one scene, you know, now they seem like co-parents, now they seem like co-husbands, now they're strictly team team, you know, associates because it's just not that's not the important thing about the stories we're telling, like the the gender and and how they think of themselves is so off the radar of everything else that they can kind of be anything they want to be at any one time, which is fun. Yeah, to I mean, it, with the exception, I guess, kind of of Jesse, where we sort of hit hit that in, in an episode, you, you know, like they came to Earth. We started we, we made the decision to start the show a, a ways after they arrived. So we didn't have to take a bunch of time, you know, dealing with 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 their first few months on Earth. And we, we just sort of had the idea that Jesse going to school with Yumulak kind of just 
found that she gravitated more towards females. Like she was just like, oh, I'm more like that. I like the things they like. So she just kind of in a very innocent kind of way, just decided, oh, I'm going to dress like them and kind of be that. And um, I always thought that was super interesting, being that they're that they're completely genderless and you're kind of sidestepping all of the hot button stuff with it because they're aliens and you're, you're doing it from this sort of innocent kind of naive perspective. That's why that episode is kind of fun with Jesse because it's like she doesn't know what the fuck she's getting her getting stepping into with all that. There's also something just like from a writing point of view, just really fun to be like we're we're writing an odd couple, but they're also parents, and that's never an issue. We never talk about it. It just is what it is, and you get past it so fast that it's like I sort of think it's just really refreshing to be like we don't end up falling into any sort of tropes about about those kind of relationships unless we absolutely want to, because the aliens are just doing whatever they want. Like if they're doing mission stuff that day, they don't have to be a family, but then they sometimes accidentally become a family. I don't know. It, it fits into the headline of everything on solar opposites we were doing because it was making us laugh and we were having fun and anything that allowed us to be more free at all times to do, to have every episode make sense and never like, Never, never create like a little walled garden where we were like, oh, well, in the first episode we said this. So now we can we can't go back on that or we'll be inconsistent. Like the fewer rules for these guys, the kind of more comedy and the more stories we get to tell with them, which was just a blast. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the pupa, because I feel as if that's kind of a, a breakout character. I, I know that when the trailer came out, people loved that little yellow guy. And, and I'm curious as to how you approach a character like that when I'm sure you have some sort of awareness. Oh, this is exactly the kind of cute little thing that people love to fixate on. How do we avoid letting him just become a kind of pandering little adorable slug character? How do we make sure that what he's doing has value and meaning to the story? Yeah, I could talk about the pupa for hours. Yeah, we love the pupa. Um, <laughs> I mean, the cool thing about the pupa is he is kind of this cute little mascot character doing these little things. He represents like, a, you know, a baby and a pet. And Mike has some really interesting points of view on the baby aspect. Um, but the, the thing that the thing that makes a pupa, you know, extremely deep is that it's 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 also incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Um in its DNA, it holds uh, all of the home world's history, science, architecture, everything, entertainment, anything that's ever existed. Uh, it's got everything to do with it in its DNA. And it also is capable of terraforming the planet they're on. And in doing so, it's creating a new Schlorp home world. It's, it's, it's seeding that home world as well as destroying the, 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 um, the aliens that brought it there and, 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 and doing so it, by destroying those aliens, it, that's part of the process of seeding the home world. And it's kind of all this big mission that, that's that's really kind of the end game of, of why they how why they fled and what they're supposed to be doing. And um, that's kind of terrifying, you know, especially when you kind of find that you've got something you really like, something to live for outside of just propagating the species. And Terry was really the one that was supposed to kind of understand the pupa, be able to read the pupa's uh, behavior and and if it changes the color or anything weird happens to it but he of course didn't pay attention at all and has no idea what the fuck the pupa's doing and so you know i think all of that informs this this little cute character in a really different way where you're just like oh my god he's really cute and and, and neat and they treat him like a baby but he's also absolutely terrifying because in him holds their demise and also the future of their society you know it's like this kind of 
blessing and curse mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, when we were building the family out, I knew that we wanted a baby character because I had a brand new baby back when we first started developing it. And what I didn't know about fatherhood is that you would equally love them and fear the baby at all times. And, <laughs> and I wanted a, a lovable thing that was also feared. And then on top of that, we wanted something that I grew up reading Mad Magazine and loving the Sergio Aragones comics that were, were uh, wordless and in the margins. And I loved the thought of having a character that could go on little little silent, visually driven comedic adventures. And then, of course, like the thesis of this show is everything is both stupid and deep at the same time, kind of. I mean, the unofficial thesis, I guess, because here we have the pupa, which looks like a baby, acts like a dog and a cat, but is also a supercomputer and has an extremely detailed sci-fi backstory. So at any second, it could be coughing up your car keys or it could be driving a big sci-fi story. And that's why it's like, it's another thing that's like, it could only exist on this show. It's very internally consistent with the show. But you get really funny stuff and you never know exactly what's going to come out of it. Um, it's, it's, I, I, I love the pupa. And anytime, anytime you add the pupa to anything, it makes it funnier, which is always a good sign for a character. I feel as if a lot of fans are obviously going to very quickly fixate on the the eyeballs, on the pupils again, and notice that these characters share the asterisk, butthole, whatever you want to, however you want to describe what's happening with those pupils. Um, talk a bit about that as a trope, and does that imply that this is a shared universe with Rick and Morty, even if we never actually see them share the universe? Yeah, I mean, I, I when Mike and I were brainstorming, I think that first day, I swear to God, it was like the first day we came up where we started talking about the show. I drew them on the dry erase board. The first time I drew them is exactly what they look like. And then I took I took a photo of that, brought it home, and I cleaned it up in, in Photoshop. And then I did like a really nice line art, uh, you know, line drawing, colored it in. And I was thinking I wanted the show to look like, you know, my style, which is the Rick and Morty style that, you know, and, and the pilot of Rick and Morty, I was art directing it and you know, I was like, yeah, let's, let's make it look like, <laughs> let's make it look like this, which is what, you know. There's also on top of that is like the Rick and Morty style has only become the Rick and Morty style. Like when I first met Justin and I was seeing his drawings and his stuff he was developing for Fox back in the day, that was the Justin Roiland style. And Rick and Morty <laughs> was the first show that ended up on air with his style. And my yeah. definition of Justin's style is that look that he draws and that he can draw something that makes you laugh without any context of what's going on. And that is something that is really, really rare, which would be insane not to try to build a show around literally a drawing of two aliens that are already making you laugh. And so when we were doing, when we were first developing Solar and we were building out the art and everything, and we were just assuming it was going to be in Justin's style because it's going to make you laugh, Rick and Morty hadn't even hit critical mass yet. You know, we were between seasons two and three. I don't think season two had even aired yet. I'm not even sure. It, it, it hadn't aired yet, no. And so we weren't really thinking like, wow, there's a, a, a billion people in the world who are going to compare this to Rick and Morty. We were thinking, oh, here's Justin's funny art that he and I, that he's been doing his whole life and that I've been experiencing for a decade. Let's do a show like that. You know, that being said, I love Rick and Morty. And, and I think the shows look really different when you watch them. You'll see it's a, we have a different color team. We have a lot of different design teams that like stuff feels, you know, it has a different texture than Rick and Morty and you're going to be seeing different stuff. But to me, it's really just, you know, you're hearing Justin's voice, you're seeing his drawings, there's a lot of comedy that comes from that. We're not really commenting or trying to associate with Rick and Morty. We just, we're just doing what we love and we love Rick and Morty and we love Solar. So it just- I like to think the shows take place in the same multiverse. In the same multiverse? Well, that opens up for you. I've been saying that though, that, you know, like, hey, they, 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 
they take place in the same multiverse. Yeah, that's that means they take headline. place in the same multiverse as The Simpsons and Seinfeld, too. So that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're and a spinoff show of Seinfeld, okay? That's... <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, obviously you guys have been working together for a long time and, you know, with so much w- that's working, Solar Opposites is great. Rick and Morty obviously returning uh, this weekend. How do you decide which ideas you have are best for Rick, for which show, for Rick and Morty or for Solar? You know, it's interesting. I feel like ideas sort of ripen. Some ideas are really just fluid and come together really quick. Uh, there's some kind of energy behind them that's sort of hard to describe. And then other ideas take a lot of time to sort of ripen years sometimes like i know on this new season of rick and morty there's an idea that that had been kicking around and a lot of time sunk into it since the first season and we just never figured it out and and it just sort of clicked in in the new season it kind of just came together the vehicle to put it in made more sense the the way to approach it made more sense and it just kind of came came to to be after four seasons of you know, trying to figure it out. I, I, I will say, I think, I think that's probably the, the, the ideas ripening thing is more of a Rick and Morty thing. I feel like on solar, we're, well, obviously we're season one. There are tons of ideas that are sitting around though. Right. Mike, like we won't know for a few years. if that's You know, the thing. difference between Rick and Morty and, and solar, because at one point I was doing them at the same time, but the, you know, obviously Harmon has a huge influence on Rick and Morty. When you're writing, when you're writing Rick and Morty, you're writing to try to get something that we can get to Dan and Justin that is going to bring them joy. That'll spark, spark ideas from them. And they're always specifically based, you know, when you start with on Rick, you know, an emotional story between Rick and Morty and, and the others, and then a sci-fi conceit. So really the only things we have to dodge are the sci-fi conceits because there's no Rick or Morty in solar opposites. So you're really writing for a totally different character set and the the stories go to completely different places almost instantaneously now on rick and morty we do run into a problem where it's like we're all excited for a sci-fi conceit and then either futurama south park robot chicken uh uh, some other show has kind of already touched on that and then we have to go well god damn it there's a whole fucking robot chicken about this we have to start from scratch and on solar opposites every once in a while it'll be like you know we'll be pitching on something and a writer that's not that hasn't been on rick and morty will pitch a sci-fi idea, and I'll be like, God, we can't do that. They're doing that on Rick and Morty. It's 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 being done right now. But it's really it's never from a character place. It's always just from a, oh, what if they ate a bean and then a, a beanstalk grew in them? It's all based on mythologically broad kind of like Futurama did that. Futurama did it. Uh, we did it. Uh, Rick and Morty did it first season. So you know, as long as we're telling stories that are coming from a character place, the the sci-fi can always be adjusted so that it doesn't feel like. You're watching a show that's covering same ground. In terms of the size of the ideas, though, are they shows that fit the same size ideas? Because obviously Rick and Morty, it started off sort of as a smaller kernel of things, but the it's become more and more expansive as it's gone along. And obviously this starts somewhat comparably in the we have to establish these characters in the premise and then we can go big. Do you think that this uh, Solar Opposites world has the same expansive possibilities as Rick and Morty or are there conceptual things that you know you just wouldn't want to try doing on this show? I mean, it's already getting bigger than Rick and Morty because of the serialized aspect in and I don't want to specifically say why, because I want people to be able to watch it and and not hear it from me bumbling on a podcast. But <laughs> the serialized aspects of Solar weirdly are go deeper and heavier and bigger and then I think the family side, Justin, you think it could get as big as... 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think that we definitely could do anything. I mean, you know, we same with Rick and Morty. It's like we we sort of made the decision to kind of go really insane, you know, <laughs> and I think we could do that here as well. But we we have a foundation of characters that are really different than Rick, um, who I think Rick is the driving force of the show on Rick and Morty. And there's a lot of existentialism and a lot of darkness, you know, and moodiness. And, and um, we don't really have that uh, component on Solar. So you have these characters that are a bit more fun loving, a bit more innocent, naive. But 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 I think that um, if we chose to, we could really do some insane scoped stories with them. There's no real reason other than, you know, the draw for them to stay on Earth, for example. I'm not saying that we're doing anything with that, but there's all kinds of crazy stuff we could do. There's all kinds of sci-fi equipment up in their ship that we have that we can employ for episodes. And who knows what kind of trouble that could bring. And, you know, on Rick and Morty, we let ourselves play with the craziest ideas, like like the when they freeze time. I had pitched the idea like, oh, what if we start season two and time's still frozen? And then because they froze time, shit gets all fucked up. You know what I mean? It was like that was that was something that we entertained as for a minute. And then we kind of were like, we have to do that. It's too it's just too insane. I don't think any other shows would do that, you know. So and I think on this show, we we could certainly lean into more sort of con concept based stuff. I, I think right now we're kind of more focused on character based stuff with the main characters. We're also just having like what, however the show goes is always going to be because whatever is making us laugh and is unexpected so the you know season one i love because we got to do a lot of stuff that we had planned right from the pitch that is kind of rare where you're like we want these episodes to be like this in the pitch and then we just did it and we and it came out great and we loved it and then second season it was like okay what if we that's when you usually are like what did we not get done that we all said we loved first season and second season is is bigger and funnier and crazier but still feels exactly like the show and it gives you everything you like that we set up for a season, but kind of takes it further. And I think that like, as each, like, let's say that we keep getting picked up for more and more seasons, we're going to keep trying to surprise ourselves and grow the show and, and reward people who have watched it and who care about the characters and the things we've said, and also bring them new things. We didn't even, they didn't even know that they wanted. So I think that's, that's any good show. And, and on Rick and Morty, like just trying to surprise ourselves and keep things feeling honest and good and surprising you know, that's what we want to do on Solar Opposites too, just in in a different way. But I think we'd want to do that on any show. You know, we have a basic belief, I think, in all of the stuff that 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 Justin and I do and and, and with the other folks that we work with is that we're working with a an audience that is leaning we're making shows for an audience that is leaning forward and they're paying attention. And some of them are even freeze framing the show and some of them are talking about it at length. And we're in an era where like you can watch whatever episode you want anytime you want. You don't have to know a guy who has The Simpsons on VHS so that you can get to see something again. And we're writing a show for people who maybe want to have something on in the background. Maybe they're checking it out once. But we're also writing the same episodes for people who are freeze framing and they're treating everything extremely seriously because they've invested in it. And so there's sort of different levels of reward in whatever we're doing, you know, like if you want to treat this like this is your Bible and everything's internally consistent and it's going to go somewhere amazing, you can do that. Or if you just want to check it out because you're stoned and you're making spaghetti and you forgot to boil the water and now the spaghetti is just in a cold pot of water, but at least you got to watch a funny episode, that show is going to work for that person too. Nobody's going to feel left out. 
I love that. You know, uh, you know, in terms of the future, Solar Opposites was picked up with a two season order. Rick and Morty, obviously, at the beginning of a, a massive 70 episode pickup. How many seasons do you see Solar Opposites going? And is there a world in which there would be a crossover of any sort? Minimum 100 seasons, right, Justin? <laughs> I mean, as lo- uh, I think we could do as many as they want, you know, honestly. And then crossover, I guess, navigating those IP waters, you know, those are two mm-hmm. behemoths. Now we got Disney Plus or Disney and and you have uh, the HBO a- AT&T Time Warner behemoth. Those are very separate pools of water. I don't know. We just have to see which of those creatures is big enough to consume the other for us to be yeah, in the same right. pond. Yeah. <laughs> you can also, if you... If you turn on three TVs and you play Rick and Morty, Solar Opposites, and Wizard of Oz, they all sync up perfectly. That's, yeah, that's right. That's a little trick. That's a pro tip. So you've got to push all three TVs into one room. That's kind of the hardest part. The other yeah. hard part is clicking play on three things. You also you have to have a, a chest freezer in the room. Otherwise, it that's important. Work. Yeah, it doesn't work yeah. unless you have a huge top, the, the freezer that opens from the top, right? Yeah, the chest tra- freezer. Yeah. Real big one. And the lid has to be open. That's intentional, though. For whoever does that by accident, that's what we in the biz call an Easter egg. Yeah, that's our big Easter egg. We've been working on that for a while. I hope MGM doesn't mind. Man, when the flying monkeys show up and Corvo is screaming at a garbage truck and, and Morty's saying, ah, oh, geez, it's a beautiful moment when it all syncs up like that. <laughs> Excellent. And we like to end these interviews with a similar question. Um, what are you guys watching and enjoying these days? I've been watching the, a lot of YouTube, so it's not as as cool as probably what you get usually. But this guy named Todd in the Shadows, pretty fucking great. I'm just addicted to it. There's He does these music. It's I'm not even into like music editorializing and reviewing and stuff at all. But there's something about the way he does it. And he has a thing called One Hit Wonderland where he covers like a one hit wonder and and the song and the career of the band. And it's just so interesting. Um, And then I just started watching all of his stuff just because I got used to him. But, uh, and there's, there is a lot. I mean, there's, there's, I've probably gone through 10 hours of his content and there's still plenty to go through. So that's what I've been doing and Minecraft (laughs) and, and work. Yeah. I've been watching a ton of Star Trek because we're writing season two of Star Trek Lower Decks and we all watch the same episodes and, and, and text each other during it to kind of come up with ideas. I've been watching some Overwatch League because uh, I love Twitch stuff. And um, mostly I've been spending a lot of time with my kids, which has been great. I'm reading every Roll Doll book to my kids right now. So we just read James and the Giant Peach, The Witches, and we're in the middle of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which has actually been awesome. And I'm reading a ton of sci-fi. I consume a ton of sci-fi at all times. I'm reading a sci-fi book right now called um, A Memory Called Empire, which is great. So yeah. And then Justin, you're busier than you were before all this, right? Like I feel like work got didn't slow down yeah. at all. Well, I'm in the middle of I'm I've got two video games in development, and that's and writing an entire video game is mm. it's not it's yeah. it's a whole different thing. It's and you're time. doing. We're both doing a ton of promo. We're both. I mean, you're working on Rick and Morty. I'm working on Solar and Star Trek and some other stuff. Like, it's a crazy time to be in animation and also and, Minecraft in video games and Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> Playing Minecraft, it's a lot of work. I mean, you know, my base just got raided. They they fucked it up too. It, was, it wasn't a normal raid. It wasn't like I'm going to take your shit. It was like I'm going to ruin everything in here. 
Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Um, we really appreciate thank you guys. it. Thank yeah, thank you. The entire first season of Solar Opposites bows on May 8th on Hulu. New episodes of Rick and Morty return May 3rd on Adult Swim. And a premiere date for Star Trek Lower Decks has yet to be determined. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's new launches are Ryan Murphy's take on Hollywood at Netflix, Amazon's Upload from last week's showrunner spotlight guest Greg Daniels, Betty on HBO, Apple launches Trying, the new season of Billions debuts on Showtime, and of course, Rick and Morty is back on Adult Swim for the remainder of its fourth season. Dan, what you got? Well, I'm looking forward to watching Billion starting on Sunday. I think this is actually honestly kind of the best time possible for that show to be returning because it's a show that I like and sometimes I like a lot, but it's not a show that I've ever thought was great. And I think it's premiering at exactly the perfect moment where it isn't, for example, going to be compared with a new season of Succession, where it isn't airing opposite a dozen other highly acclaimed dramas that are probably better than it. You can actually just settle in and watch and enjoy the wonderful performances by Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti. Watch the new people joining this season, including Corey Stahl and Juliana Margulies. I, I am looking forward to simply watching Billions as a fan of the show and someone who's relieved that it won't have the pressure of having to pretend to be one of the best shows on TV and just being a good, satisfying kind of occasionally trashy New York style big money show. So that's one thing. As for the other shows that are actually premiering this week, they're a little bit of a mixed bag. I think that Amazon's upload is occasionally a mishmash of elements. It's a little bit of murder mystery. It's a little bit of sci-fi story. It's a little bit of an afterlife show. It's a little bit of romantic comedy. And you should definitely check out our interview from last week with Greg Daniels, where he talks about how the different elements came together. In the balance, I really like this show, though, because I think it it is smart and funny. And so if the murder mystery doesn't work, and to me, it wasn't really all that interesting, there's a very good dramatic push involving, well, characters who die and what that means in a world in which you can have your existence uploaded into a virtual afterlife. There's a sweet romantic thing with the two main characters played by Robbie Amell and Andy Allo, who are both quite fine. I think Andy Allo is particularly great, actually. Yeah. And the chemistry between them is really good. It's it's just a it's just a genuine sweet chemistry and it and it kind of grounds the show. And I think it's a show that's just full of quick, you know, blink and you miss them in jokes and social satire and economic satire about the decline and fall of capitalism. And so I think there are a lot of things to really like in this show, even if maybe what under other circumstances might have been the spine of the show, you know, the plot involving whether the main character was murdered and what it all means. To me, that doesn't come together. But there's a lot I enjoyed. Speaking of shows that don't really entirely come together. That would be uh, Ryan Murphy's Hollywood on Netflix. It is a show that, well, I mean, let's be honest, it's it's probably a bit of a mess. And I think that a lot of people are going to go, ha ha ha. So it's a Ryan Murphy show, you're saying. And I feel <laughs> like and, and that's an attitude that to me is kind of ridiculous, you know, because People are like, ah, Glee went off the rails and uh, I don't know, Popular wasn't as good after season two and Nip Tuck went crazy. And, and it really doesn't take into account that 
I don't know, People versus OJ was a great season of TV. The Johnny Versace season was a very, very good season of TV. Feud was a very good season of TV, et cetera, and even et cetera. season <laughs> one of Glee and season one of Nip Tuck, and I haven't seen Popular. This is where you make fun of me for that. Those no. are both very good seasons of television. And yeah. to me, Glee is still one of the best pilots I've ever seen. So so I think there's a sort of a, a facile, ha, 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 Ryan Murphy, things go off the rails, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. So that doesn't bother me. Pose would be another example of a show that really didn't go off the rails in season two. I don't know if I liked the second Brilliant. season quite as much as the first season, but it didn't Agreed. go off the rails. I still And so, I still love, obviously, both seasons of Pose, but season one was incredible. And that's a show that wouldn't have gotten made were it not for Ryan Murphy. And so, you know, Hollywood is is a mess. And, and the alt-history approach to Hollywood and progress in Hollywood, to me, comes across as disingenuous and reduces a lot of people who did very real things to push Hollywood in the direction of progress, things that Ryan Murphy is doing currently, it should be noted. Uh, it, it pushes them to the background in favor of a really, really facile central plot about a bunch of young people who really just want to make progress in Hollywood so much that they do. And that's not really the way progress is made. So it's it's really a fairy tale rather than being even an alt history. That being said, it is a show that looks beautiful. It is full of wonderful period production details. And it, it's a it's a wonderful cast. Uh, I don't think, for example, this is a, nearly as good a role for Darren Chris as Johnny Versace as that limited series for which he won countless awards. Everything. I, I think here he's actually rather boring and the character is sanctimonious and rather annoying. But there are great performances from uh, Joe Mantello, who's a theater legend. He's he's tremendous here. Uh, Dylan McDermott, who's enjoying a, a great career renaissance in the past couple of years, in some part due to Ryan Murphy. He's fantastic here. Jeremy Pope, who's a Broadway theater actor who was nominated for a couple Tonys a couple years ago. He, to me, is the breakout here. But uh, Samara Weaving, who some people will know from Ready or Not, she is very good. If you only know Jim Parsons from Big Bang Theory, he will scandalize you and shock you with some of the things he does here. Patty Lapone is great. Rob Reiner is great. It, there are enough good performances that I was able to constantly find things to be entertained by in this show, even if the core time traveling element to me didn't work at all. So I would say those are my Critics Corner picks of the week. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Well, Dan, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by hopefully one of my favorites and possibly another great showrunner spotlight that we are currently in the mix of scheduling. <laughs> we are living in uncertain times, Leslie. <laughs> but until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always on Twitter, and we're always happy to chat with you about your questions, comments, and concerns. We didn't need a mailbag segment this week, but heck, maybe we will next week. If you want to reach out with questions, you can reach us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 